From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this broadcast on July the 20th, 2020. We are incredibly fortunate today to have back with us our COVID-19 expert, Dr. Greg Poland. He's here to answer questions today about the latest in COVID-19 and uh, what everybody's wondering. Thanks for being here again, Dr. Yeah, Poland. it's good to be back. It's wonderful to see you again. It's been a little bit since we've recorded any of these, so Indeed. I'm interested to hear what you have to share today. Oh, there's so much happening. I mean, you know, we are... We are to the point where we will probably by the end of this month uh, get up worldwide to 14 million cases, uh, 600,000 some odd deaths here in the U.S. We're at about three and a half headed toward 4 million uh, known cases with almost 140,000 deaths. We're seeing more and more children and young adults getting infected. We're seeing the age of hospitalization move down to an average of 40 years um, from what had been uh, hospitalization really for people in their 60s and older. Um, but we're seeing a lot of positive movement. Um, we now have a recommendation that when you're out in public, a face mask is important. We're seeing large companies insist on customers wearing it. We're seeing some really positive movement in the vaccine sphere. We're seeing a lot of positive uh, results with antivirals and other repurposed drugs for treating COVID-19. So, you know, I think if we do the right things here, despite the resurgence, we can get this dampened back down and push this off until we've got these just on the brink vaccines ready to go. I am glad to hear you mention some positives. And so let's <laughs> jump right in and let's start with uh, what we know about the vaccine trials. I know there was one um, uh, published last week in the New England yeah. Journal of Medicine, and then um, there are a couple more this week as well. So tell us yeah, what you know. You're exactly right, uh, Helena. And, and in fact, last week, Moderna published their early results. Today, as we're speaking, uh, both AstraZeneca, uh, Oxford, and uh, Pfizer, uh, BNT Tech, uh, published their uh, early results. All three of them are favorable. There are differences between them, um, even differences in, in some of the platforms. But what they are all showing is the ability to induce neutralizing antibody, and at least in the latter two vaccines that I mentioned, the ability to induce a balanced immunity. One of the real keys, and I, and I should add, we've talked about it before, but 
We don't know which marker to best follow. Everybody's looking at neutralizing antibody, and that may be one, but it's pretty clear you also need T-cell or cellular uh, immunity, and uh, both of the uh, adenovirus vectored vaccines do induce that, some of them after one dose. So uh, these will now, all three, will head into phase three trials in this month. Um, so that, you know, when you look at those uh, phase three alone, just those three trials, that'll be about 120,000 participants. So that'll take some months to do. But uh, it's consistent with what uh, I projected back, you know, six months ago when we were talking about this, is this is going to be uh, somewhere around a 12-month plus process and that will be unprecedented in the history of mankind to develop these kind of vaccines. So there are multiple different approaches. Some companies are probably closer than others. When do you think that we can anticipate to have a vaccine? And will there be multiple types of vaccines or are we likely to settle on one? Well, this is going to be, I think, the hard part. I, I think we're going to have and need multiple different types of vaccines. Kids may need a different vaccine than, let's say, a pregnant woman, than, and different yet from an older, more frail person or an immunocompromised person. So we do need different kinds of vaccines. I think what's going to be hard and confusing for providers and the public is they'll sort of stumble out one after another. They'll have differential efficacy, differential side effect profiles. Uh, they'll require two doses. And, you know, I'm, I'm just writing an editorial now. How will people think about this if the first vaccine, and I'm just making this up, let's say it's 50 or 60% effective, uh, but causes side effects in 60 to 70% of people. And a month later, when you're supposed to get your second dose, a new vaccine has come out, but it's 70 to 80% effective and, and, and has uh, side effects that occur in 20% of people. That's, that's going to be a confusing array of vaccines. We have never in the history of mankind produced multiple vaccines against a pandemic in so short a period of time. So this is going to be a process of education. To your point, once we have those vaccines, the really big push is going to be how do you manufacture, fill, and distribute that so you can get it into arms. No vaccine is any good if it's not you know, inside uh, people's arms. These vaccines appear to take two doses. So let's just take the U.S. alone, 350 million roughly people. How are we going to get 700 million doses of vaccines in, in the few months after the vaccine's released? It's going to be problematic. There's a lot of talk about face masks, pro and con. I'm wondering what the scientific evidence is. Do face masks really work? And does it matter if they are cloth or the paper surgical masks? Part of what we're seeing in this resurgence along the southern rim of the U.S., is a lack of mask wearing and a physical distancing. So we have watched in real time what happens when we ignore or don't implement those kinds of precautions. We have also watched countries in real time that have realized they've got a major problem, have mandated public mask wearing, and very quickly seen those cases be suppressed down uh, to manageable levels where we could go back to work, we could you know, go back to school, we could do the things that we want to do. 
The other thing that I think is important is to realize that healthcare workers are being affected by this. It's not just, you know, some vague general public. Uh, over 3,000 healthcare workers, our, our colleagues uh, around the world, have died of COVID, over 500 of them in the, in the U.S. alone. I bring that up because uh, just a week ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital looked at the effect in their healthcare workers and other people working in the hospital and clinic pre-mask wearing and then once they instituted mask wearing. And it's really interesting. Prior to wearing face masks, between 4 and 48%, depending on what your job was, of those individuals were seropositive. Once they went to um, universal masking, it fell to 11.5%. So very effective. Now, it's not, it's not a magic bullet by itself, but very, very effective. So you start putting together mask wearing, physical distancing, hand sanitizing, and you now have a, an, a web of interventions that together is uh, as effective, I think, as a vaccine is going to end up uh, being. That's great. I, what you were saying about um, the data that's coming out is really interesting. I know that at Mayo Clinic, we had uh, a drop in um, employees being affected yeah. when um, universal masking on Mayo Clinic property as well as social distance mm -hmm. has been uh, instituted. Uh, I don't think we've published that data, but it is really good to know that, that it's working. Mayo was really ahead of the curve because uh, we started wearing masks right away. As you know, when we see patients, we have a mask, eye goggles, or a face uh, plastic face mask uh, on. Those are very effective, and people took them seriously because they're educated about the risk of this. The problem is when we're dealing with, uh, you know, individuals in the in the public who have seen varying recommendations, who have conflated it with personal liberties and things like that. And my answer to that is always, you, you want freedom, wear a mask and let's get this disease dampened down and done with. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We are incredibly fortunate today to have back with us our COVID-19 expert, Dr. Greg Poland. So you mentioned that in some areas um, there's not as much masking and that perhaps has something to do with these incredible numbers that we're seeing in some mm -hmm. of particularly mm -hmm. the southern states. I was thinking of Florida uh, yeah. a weekend or so ago. I think they had 15,000 positive cases in, yeah. in one weekend. Um, Tell us about the current therapies for COVID-19. Have, have those changed since we last talked? Do we have more effective therapies now if people do develop the virus? Yeah, the, it's a great question. And, and the answer, very fortunately, is a happy yes. Um, as you know, we've learned a lot about how to ventilate individuals with uh, putting them on their stomach and trying to avoid ventilators where we can. Dexamethasone has been shown in a, in a great study, a well-designed study, to be helpful in more severe cases. Another trial of remdesivir uh, has occurred showing um, uh, an improvement by about 62%. That's a, that's a big uh, uh, increase. And then uh, we're starting to see trials of um, uh, beta interferon, IL-6 inhibitors, 
other antivirals and monoclonals, uh, don't want to leave out so-called bridge therapies like human convalescent sera. So, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable. I know it feels like forever, but, you know, you realize that this really came to the world's attention as a pandemic in that February, March timeframe. And to think in just a handful of months, the amount of scientific study and literature that has been published, uh, three front-runner vaccines with another 10 right behind it, uh, multiple theory, therapies that have now been shown to be helpful, understanding the need in, in a number of these cases for something like anticoagulation. This is truly stunning, unprecedented medical advances in, in an unbelievably compressed amount of time. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that uh, we're going to get this under control. And if you will, the last straw in doing that is getting people to adhere to these so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, washing your hands, wearing a mask, physical distancing. When patients do develop COVID, we're now able to test for the antibodies, obviously, with serology testing. There's suggestion that the evidence is that the, the levels of antibody fall rather rapidly mm. even after patients recover. What is the implication of that? This is something that is, uh, as I've explained it to people, kind of an immunologic mystery. So you're, you're very right, Helena, that, uh, for example, one study from Imperial College looked at 90 people who had been recently infected. Their antibody levels peaked by about three weeks after developing symptoms. By 12 weeks, their antibodies had fallen 3 to 23-fold. Nobody's really followed them out longer than that. Now, at one level, this isn't a surprise. We see this and knew this with seasonal coronaviruses. With SARS and MERS, we saw rapidly following an falling antibody levels, and by two years, hard to detect much of an immune response. So the question will be, can they be reinfected? And if so, how severely? Emerging early data, and it's pretty anecdotal at this point, is that some people may very well get reinfected. Whether it's just as severe or has additive ill effects, we don't know yet. The other side of that coin is it may well mean that even with good vaccines, that we're going to have to give boosters of that to keep antibody and cellular immunity you know, active and vibrant so that when you come in contact with the virus, uh, you, you do two things. One, you don't get terribly sick with it, and two, you don't transmit it to others. And so that would not be dissimilar to what we do with, say, measles. Uh, yeah, and influenza, uh, you know, would be one we're familiar with where, you know, certainly we as physicians at Mayo Clinic, we get that vaccine every year. And that may very well be the strategy that we'll engage uh, with in coronavirus. What can you tell us about um, getting back to life safely, shopping, going to restaurants, travel? It's really a function of what kind of health and risks do you and your family have? And what sort of epidemiologic or geographic setting are you going into? At one level, I, I'm still urging extreme caution. Um, we have story after story, and I'll tell you about one locally here, 
uh, of a phys- ER physician who took all the right precautions, even locked down his family. After months of this, they decided they were going to briefly let a cousin visit. They all got infected. So, you know, we still have to be vigilant. It's been so long, I'm tempted sometimes to let my guard down, but that's a, that's a dangerous thing to do. So I think depending on what setting you're going to go into, you want to you wanna realize that there's only two ways to get infected with this virus. Breathe it in or introduce it to your eyes, nose, or, or mouth by your fingers. So if you don't touch your face before washing your hands and you don't eat before washing your hands, you've eliminated one whole way of getting infected. The only thing left then is breathing it in. And that's where the physical distancing and the mask wearing turns out to be important. Well, next on the calendar then will be fall. And Mm -hmm. fall makes us think about kids going to school and our uh, college students going back to live in dorms and return to school. What are your current thoughts on uh, how this might go and should it and what should people do to be safe? I like the way you put it, current thoughts, because uh, this is a very dynamic situation. We could see viral mutations. We could see early release of a vaccine. Those are the kinds of things that could really change uh, these early thoughts. But I've been working with a number of schools and colleges, and here's kind of how I think about it. If you have a kid that's uh, diabetic, asthmatic, immunocompromised, that's a really high-risk situation. And, And I would value Uh, saying that's probably an online situation uh, for that child or with proper precautions, bringing a teacher to the home, uh, for example. That's another option that people are starting to think about. Um, So I think the online option is always going to be the the safest one. Is it the best one, particularly for early childhood education, where that socialization, that face-to-face time Uh, turns out to be important. This gets into a risk equation and a values judgment on the the behalf of those parents and and school districts. I think that they're going to be school districts where they have taken these interventions very seriously. They have suppressed disease to very low levels. I think they're going to safely reopen. Well, it has been a real delight today to have uh, infectious disease and virologist Dr. Greg Poland here with us today again. And thank you, Greg, for being here. I've enjoyed catching up with you. Yes, indeed. Enjoyed catching up with you, too. Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Injections are used to relieve pain in joints due to arthritis and overuse injuries. A recent study suggests that frequent steroid use may affect cartilage health. A Mayo Clinic sports medicine specialist says there are risks and benefits of injections. They say when pain affects quality of life, a corticosteroid may be prescribed. Corticosteroids are basically strong anti-inflammatory medications. They can decrease inflammation in joints and tendons. Patients who have developed osteoarthritis 
arthritis or degeneration of the joint may have some benefits after the use of corticosteroids. Multiple injections in the same joint may lead to cartilage issues around the bone. For that reason, doctors may want to limit the amount of corticosteroid injection they do in a single joint in order to avoid these complications. Injections may offer short-term pain relief, but should be used together with a good rehabilitation program for longer results. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Mayo Clinic Connect was started in 2011, and it's an online community connecting patients and family caregivers with each other. It's a great idea. It is. Community members share experiences, ask questions, find answers, get support, and exchange information. Joining us in studio to tell us more about it is Colleen Young, Community Director for Mayo Clinic Connect, and one of Connect's volunteer mentors, Rosemary Huckleberry. It's nice to meet both of you. Thank Thank you. Colleen Rosemary, very nice to have you here because I think all of us should know more about Mayo Clinic Connect, and I certainly want to learn more about it. Colleen, let's start with you. Is this something that you started in 2011? Uh, No, I came in in about 2015 and took over as the community director. So just to, to simplify it the most, it's a support group online. Absolutely. And can anyone join? Anyone can join. So you don't have to be a Mayo Clinic patient to join. Uh, It's open for Mayo Clinic patients as well as anyone from around the world. And in fact, we have members from around the world on Connect. How How many? many? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) good one. Uh, Just uh, shy of 90,000 members registered on Connect. Impressive. And what would you say your mission is? What, What are you really trying to accomplish by forming this group? So a lot of people build online communities for patients to connect them. And that's what our name says as well. But we go beyond that. So besides just connecting them, we really want them to connect in order to improve their health and well-being. So we try to encourage them to define what that is. So perhaps it's just reducing their anxiety as they're waiting to start chemotherapy treatment. Or perhaps it's because they want to quit smoking. So the members themselves are determining why they come to Connect. Rosemary, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from and how did you get involved with Connect? I am from Kentucky and I am an organ transplant recipient. Um, And when I got home, I was doing well, but I was wanting to know what life was like after the recovery, uh, how long did I need to maintain certain things to stay healthy, Um, what was in my future. Online, I was searching for people, and I found Mayo Clinic Connect, and I found people who were asking a lot of questions about liver disease, liver transplant, all kinds of things that I had just recently experienced, And I was able to share my experiences and found out I was supporting them. And they liked it and they thanked me. And the benefit for me, though, is I met others who lived with transplants who were able to support me and encourage me to keep going. When was your transplant? My transplant was actually in 2009. And it was a liver? Liver and a kidney. You had both? I had both, and I had a rare liver disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis. No, you look fabulous. Well, thank you. Well, thank and you. And you went to the Mayo Clinic to have that done, didn't you? I and, was actually flown out of ICU by my home transplant department to get up here. So my heart also belongs to Mayo Clinic. So you went from being a member of the Connect Group to now you're uh, you're one of the facilitators. So tell us about what what you're doing that's different now. Well, what I am doing different is 
I have made a personal commitment to stay update on what people are asking about. But also as a mentor, I am more of a connector, a supporter. If someone has a medical concern or question, I try to connect them with other people who share similar concerns. And and I have had the privilege of meeting, uh, conversing, sitting around the coffee table, so to speak, or the kitchen table, and talking to people from every state, different countries, and different medical facilities. And that's where it gets really interesting, because by sharing all of our different experiences, Mm -hmm. uh, we become smarter. We learn better how to take care of ourselves. It's kind of a a blended conversation. Colleen, can you tell us some other stories or examples of how Connect has helped patients? What I would love to say is that what brings someone to Connect is often an acute need, right? So they have a a really burning question. And and like Rosemary, what brings them back is that they can give back. And uh, that really then builds community. Um, I would love to share a story where we've been able to build that collective knowledge. So I started a thread that was just uh, called, How Do You Get Off to a Good Start with a New Specialist? Mm. And so we started to collect that information. Everybody shared their tips and tricks. And then that was made into an article for the Mayo Clinic app. So while we helped you know, our thousands of members within the community, we were then able to produce basically a piece of information for patients by patients. You're crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing. <laughs> so how do you ensure that the information that, that's on the Mayo Clinic Connect is accurate? So there are a number of different ways and safeguards that we have. First of all, we just have some spam filters that help us. So we use technology where technology can be helpful. But the human factor is super important. So the first uh, line of defense in an online community to make sure that it's good information is that you have an active community. You would be surprised how self-correcting the community is. So we model compassionate behavior on uh, Connect, very welcoming. We're, we have zero tolerance for zero responses. So we always make sure that a new member is greeted. And by having that active community, people are not trying to be bad actors, but they're maybe bringing some misinformation because that's how they understood the information that their physician gave to them or that they heard from their neighbor. So you had some physician moderators, for example, or some experts to look over the material. So we have moderators, yes. Yeah, we have five paid moderators. And can someone who uh, signs up for Mayo Clinic Connect, can can they remain anonymous? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the ways that we uh, ensure people's privacy is guarded. So we only know from the people what they uh, want to share with us. And there are different topics, right? I mean, yes. you, can, you can join whatever group or talk to whichever group that you want to. Correct. Right now we have over 60 groups of varying uh, conditions or demographics, like we have a group dedicated to caregivers, for example. And right now you all are here learning a little bit from each other and learning how to be better mentors. And Rosemary, what is it that you hope to learn or what do you see for your future as a connector? I would like to find ways to make people who are afraid to ask a question feel comfortable. You know, it you put yourself out in front of people. It, it, you know, for me, it was emotionally difficult to share my journey. And it is for a lot of people. I'd like to keep up with promoting the positivity, welcoming, 
everybody, which we do, but to make it easier for someone to take that jump into the cold water. Well, I can't imagine how helpful it would be for somebody who is going, uh, getting ready to go through a transplant to be able to talk to someone like you who has been through it. Yes. One example is a gentleman who struggled with this pre-transplant you know, symptoms and hospitalizations, and he had a whole community of people supporting him, sharing what they'd been through. And after his transplant, he came back to us and said, hey, everybody, mm. I got my so transplant. I just got moved to my room. Thank you, and I'll get back with you. He wrote from his hospital bed. Isn't that beautiful? Mayo Clinic Connect, it's an online community where people can share experiences and find support from people just like themselves. And anyone can join, too, by the way. It's uh, connect.mayoclinic.org. Right, anyone. Our thanks to the director of Mayo Clinic Connect, Colleen Young, and volunteer mentor, Rosemary Huckleberry. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the new ways of reaching patients through digital medicine. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, there is little question that healthcare delivery in the U.S. is shifting toward virtual healthcare. Now, some, like today's guest, prefer to call it connected care or digital care. It refers to visits or interactions that take place between patients and clinicians over the telephone or some kind of video hookup. Patients, I think, are increasingly drawn to the concept of healthcare services that come to them rather than vice versa. It makes sense to me. Yeah, that not that, great. Yeah, not that long ago, most health systems assumed that a quiet, private clinical setting was essential to the doctor-patient relationship, but not anymore. Joining us in studio is the director for Mayo Clinic Center for Connected Care, Dr. Steve Amon. Welcome to the program. It's nice to see you again. No, thank you for having me. Dr. Amon, nice to meet you. Nice to meet uh, you. you know, I know you know Tracy, but uh, I haven't met you before, so it's great to have you on the program, particularly talking about what you like to refer to as connected care. Yes. Um, so healthcare is changing. The world is changing. Healthcare is uh, changing. And there are a lot of names for what you call connected care. And it gets a little bit confusing. So do they all mean the same? Virtual, telemedicine, telehealth, digital health, and connected care? I think there are probably definitions for each of them that make them sound different. But in the end, most people interpret them the same way. And and you summarized it well. It's it's the ability for us as doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners to reach out to our patients where they're at to help take care of them. And that might be a conversation over phone. It might be a conversation with video so we can see facial expressions or see something move on the patient. It might be collecting data about that patient either through questionnaires or monitors that the patient is wearing or utilizing to send data back to the clinic so that we can use that to make decisions with the patient about what's right for them. Well, it sounds fabulous. I mean, we've got listeners out there right now who are saying, well, I got a question for my doctor. So <laughs> how do you access, how, how, what gives you the ability to do this, either by telephone or some video link? Yeah, so there's several different ways. The, the one that's probably the least sexy but the most utilized is just sending messages to your doctors rather than playing phone tag with each other at the end of the day. So the ability to use the patient portal to send an update to your doctor, my blood pressure is higher than it used to be, or my shoulder isn't better today, and for the doctor or the appropriate team member on their team to get back to the patient 
in a good amount of time has made those interactions much less onerous on both sides. The way I look at it, it's similar to the way we all make dinner plans now. We always start off by sending a message to someone, hey, do you want to get together for dinner? If that's all that's needed and the answer is yes, then you're done. As soon as it gets complicated, then that escalates to something else. It's a phone call. Or it might even be, why don't we get together first and then make the plans for the weekend? So we're just trying to do the same thing with medicine that we're all used to doing culturally in many other aspects of our lives. So explain, um, again, you're the director for Mayo Clinic Center for Connected Care. So it's its own office at Mayo Clinic. And what is the desire or what is the hope and hopes and dreams? Yeah, so, so we are more than just a technology. We have a, a very skilled team that helps put together business cases for doing these type of interactions, the secure messages, or a video visit after you've had an operation at Mayo Clinic. Uh, lawyers, compliance officers, implementation specialists. So our job is to work with the practice at Mayo Clinic, the doctors in their practices, to understand which of these tools might help you with your practice. For a surgeon, it might be doing video visits after the patient's had a surgery rather than making that patient come back hundreds of miles to see them for a routine follow-up visit. Now the surgeon can go to that patient's home virtually or digitally uh, to see them and have that conversation, which saves the patients a lot of travel time, a lot of travel cost, and they provide the same level of care. As the surgeon at the table here, how would you? what percentage of your patients do you think you could have successfully treated in a virtual sense? I would suppose uh, at least half, mm-hmm. although sometimes uh, our patients would come back for imaging because it was a cancer or it was a tumor and we would need to see them and mm-hmm. they would need to come to the clinic. But for a wound check, for example, or to see how the range of motion is after a total knee, um, you could easily do that um, with a video. And, and do you use Skype? Is that the medium? or how, What's the medium? Yeah, for- so there, there's special software that's utilized to have the data privacy issues we need and the HIPAA compliance. So we, we do have a vendor we work with that satisfies all those privacy security considerations. The ones that we all use in our personal lives, like Skype and FaceTime, et cetera, don't quite have the security or the or the reliability. We forget casually when the conversation drops on a call if you're discussing someone's pathology result, you don't want to have the audio glitch on the word not. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, have, we do a lot of stringent analysis of the endpoints as well as the software that connect us to our patients to help that work. And what about regulatory issues? Uh, how do you circumvent those? And, and aren't there a fair number that are hard to get around? Yeah, state to state, country yeah. to country. Exactly. So, so in order to provide care to a patient where they're at, uh, technically we need to be licensed where the patient is when they're getting that care. So that limits our ability to do new business, uh, for, for me to do a consult with a patient who's never been to Mayo Clinic before, to reach across the state line or across the country line to do an intake pr- or to provide care we stay away from. What we can do in that circumstance, though, is have better record upload or information gathering about the patient to help optimize their time when they do come here. Now, if, if they have been a patient yep. here and they go home, yep. uh, then it's okay if I don't have a license in Illinois? That, then our, we've had our legal team review that, and they feel that is continuation of the care plan you set in place here. And it's what you've been doing on the phone uh, for decades anyway, and having video doesn't change that bar. So this is um, more 
broadly just saying it's for more follow-up care. What about initial visits? Is there any sort of future there? There is a future there, and I I do think that we are going to see that regulatory environment change. All kinds Mm -hmm. of legislators are talking to us about what do we need to do to help patients get better access for care. So that that land mark will change over time. In terms of new visits, we do have a tool that we use called Express Care Online, where a patient who's already a Mayo Clinic patient can log on to the patient portal, and for the 20 most common primary care diagnoses, they can answer a few questions online. Within an hour, that is reviewed by a nurse practitioner that works in one of the Express Care clinics, and if appropriate, can issue a prescription for that patient based on their responses. All within that hour, the patient didn't have to leave school or work or home in order to get that done. So there is some opportunity to optimize care even at the front end. And how would a patient access that? That's through their uh, Mayo Clinic patient online services. And do lots of not just Mayo Clinic, but are there patient portals for many patients? Is that gaining traction across the country? Yeah, so most healthcare systems now have some version of a patient portal, usually tied to their electronic health record. Uh, The utilization of the Mayo Clinic portal is higher than average. We have about two-thirds to three-quarters of our patients using their portal around an episode of care at Mayo, which is at least twice what the national average is. So we have a team that works very hard with our patients to understand what features are you wanting? Is that working right for you? How do you get to the features you want as a patient? (laughs) That's about something about Minnesotans being overachievers. I don't know. (laughs) Hey, so what is the future Oh, of, one more oh. question before we get there. Reimbursement. Yeah. I, I, will, will Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance companies pay for these uh, connected care visits? There's all kinds of different rules around which types of visits are reimbursed and which ones might not be. Okay. The One of the reasons why it's had such a good uptake in the surgical practice is because most operations are, are handled by a single bundle, which covers all the follow-up visits. So to do the follow-up visit by video that way makes sense uh, because we don't have to worry about whether the patient's getting billed or et cetera, because it's already part of what they paid for their knee operation, for instance. And it's also been said that healthcare is moving from a fee-based to a risk-based Correct. model. Is that what, what does that mean, and is that good for connected care? I, I think, again, managing our patients around diagnoses and saying this is this is how much the this care costs and not worrying about line-iting each little thing that goes into that will be the move that will make this more adopted. And what's the future? Yeah, the future is utilizing data. So the ability for us to get data back from our patients, be that with a device I prescribed to the patient to take home a blood pressure monitor, a scale that is Bluetooth connected, or now wearable devices that are monitoring heart rate, oxygen saturations, even some electrolyte values can be determined by some of these sensors. Having that data flow back to our system, having some of our computing power, the artificial intelligence power, act on that data and give us advice about how to escalate or de-escalate a patient's care is the future of utilizing these connectivity options. Well, we're just getting started. Huh? Love it. Dr. Steve Amon is director for Mayo Clinic Center for Connected Care. I mean, it's like, beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> Connected Healthcare is here, and I love this line, the patient will see you now. And in the not-too-distant future, I think patients are likely to expect this as one way that they can interact with their healthcare providers. Our thanks to Dr. Steve Amon. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.